Welcome to Central Coast Voices, a program that addresses challenges faced regionally, the need for and consequences of change, and how today's choices impact tomorrow's community. This program is an extension and production of Action for Healthy Communities and provided in collaboration with KCBX. Chris Kington Barker is your host for today's show, and she will be visiting with guests from Hospice of San Luis Obispo County, a non-medical volunteer hospice and community grief center, to discuss some of the gaps in healthcare today that often take people by surprise at times when they are most vulnerable. You are invited to join Chris and her guest in today's conversation. You can call in your questions to be part of the discussion at 805-549-8855 or email them to voices at kcbx.org. Over to you, Chris. Thank you, Nico. Studies have shown that the aging baby boomer generation could fuel more than a 50% increase in the number of Americans ages 65 and older requiring some level of supported elder care. The demand for care is also being driven by a steep rise in the number of Americans living with dementia. Meeting and managing the challenge in caring for older adults in the future is hard to comprehend when finding resources today are already behind, beyond the financial and emotional capacity of many. My guest today will be shedding more light on these growing concerns and their importance for every one of us. I'm joined today by Shannon McCowett, Executive Director, and Kim Chartrand, RN and Care Manager for Hospice of San Luis Obispo County. And thanks for coming on today, Shannon and Kim. I really appreciate it. And this is this is a topic that we've talked about off and on through the years, but I think um, something that more and more people are running up against and getting blindsided by. So um, can, well, I'm gonna start with you, Kim. One of the one of the things that you do as a care manager, can you kind of explain what your role is at Hospice Slow as a care manager and, and the nursing that comes behind that? Hi, Chris. Thank you so much for having us. Um, yes, my role as a care manager, I kind of see it like a traffic cop almost, where people come to me um, wanting to know where to go what direction to take, especially regarding their healthcare choices, options, resources in the community. Most people come to caregiving not having planned to do it and find themselves when they are in that caregiving role, uh, kind of unsure about what direction to take and feeling rather alone. So I can help people with care planning. That's kind of where my background of nursing comes in is doing writing up care plans for people so that we can look at what's on the table for current uh, needs, and then also midterm needs and later needs, and and try to develop a a plan of attack, if you will, and a way to help co-create with our clients the directions that they want to go based on their wishes. Shannon, this, uh, the care manager role is something that was added to San Luis Obispo to hospice, slow, because of a need, can you talk a little bit about what was being seen that you, that kind of went, you know, we've got to do something here? Yeah. So we would go into uh, people's homes and do an assessment. So we would go meet with folks 
and learn about what their needs were and what they were really wanting as far as volunteer support. You know, did they need transportation to medical appointments? Did they, did the caregiver need respite? They just needed a break and needed a volunteer to, to be with their loved ones so they could take care of themselves. Did the, um, did the client just need some companionship? Did they want to get out of the house? Um, but more and more we were hearing there were just greater needs beyond our scope of services of what a volunteer could really provide in the home. And there are so many resources available in San Luis Obispo County. Oftentimes we hear there aren't enough resources. And sure, there are resources that are lacking, but we do have a tremendous amount of support available, but it's really difficult to figure out how to, what is available and how to access it. And, you know, handing somebody a caregiver who is so overwhelmed, um, a list of resources and having them try to figure out how to navigate that and make those calls was just one more, it was just adding kind of fuel to their fire that they were kind of living in. And so this care manager role was really um, that piece that kind of filled in in that gap where we could continue, we could do the assessment, we could match these folks with a volunteer so they could get some support that they were needing. And then the care manager could come in and really do this care planning, identify what resources did exist for their particular situation, and not only hand them a list of resources, but actually make the referrals for them, follow. And then what I love about the care manager piece is that she is following up with these families and the caregivers and checking in on them. Hey, were you, you know, I made this referral on your behalf. Did they reach out to you? Have you been able to connect with them? Did you make this call? Is this resource actually working out for you? Do you need something more? And so she's able to keep, you know, connecting with them until they, you know, maybe don't need her to connect with them anymore. Or when they know that that care manager is here for them. And so if something comes up before she calls them, they know that they have someone to call. So they've got their, you know, their volunteer that's coming and supporting them and has eyes on the, in the home with them. But the care manager is also helping them navigate those resources planning and preparing for next steps and helping to fill in those gaps um, that we're really missing. And, you know, throughout the pandemic, and then as we're, you know, sort of inching our way out of that kind of catastrophic, um, this is more needed more and more um, for people who have been living in catastrophe for years now. Yeah. And don't just don't know where where to turn. Absolutely. And Kim, let's talk a little bit about some of, you know, when people talk about gaps in our healthcare system, we, we have a system that has different components. And when people talk about continuum of care, they're talking about different levels of care, but there are spaces in between those. Can, can you kind of walk through those spaces for me? If, if someone, let's say someone um, fell 
and an older person fell and went to the emergency room and had a hip fracture. Can you kind of walk me through what the scenario would look like for that person and where those gaps might occur? Sure, yeah. And that's a that's a great example because it common it's common, you know, for people to have this happen and it depends on I mean the gaps kind of depend on what the living situation is of the person. If the person lives alone, then of course the gaps are are large and many because all of the burden of caretaking and arranging caretaking falls on that individual. And when somebody is ill or injured, they don't really feel like doing that. Also, I mean, because this comes back to most people don't really anticipate being in the role of either care receiver or caregiver, um, then they don't know how to ask for help with resources. Like, who should I ask while I'm in, uh, or when I'm in the hospital? Um, who can make those referrals for me or assist me? Another thing that people don't realize is that there, there actually is a law that requires the hospital to place the person in a safe situation. And so if your situation isn't safe, you know, you shouldn't be discharged from the hospital until a safe situation is found. So that's, you know, those are some of the gaps. Um, if a person has a caregiver or care, you know, people who are surrounding them to receive them at home, they usually fare a little better. But then what happens is that caregiver is burdened with the care, with the, having to do the care and, and then find resources. And again, same situation exists that they didn't come to that role knowing and they don't know where to look, where to find. Another problem is that you know, so there are there there are case managers, there are discharge planners in the hospital, and that's great. You get kind of that scope of service that helps give you that coverage while you're in the hospital. But the problem is, is you're sort of when you're dumped back into your home, you're back into the community, and then it becomes kind of like crickets out there because you know there aren't either if there are care managers or case managers out in you know, working independently. Like, you know, it's kind of pricey. It can be kind of pricey to have that. So, you know, people really don't know where to turn and how to get that help. Um, and so that's a huge gap because then what happens is you're trying to wing it. You're trying to work your network, you know, of your friends. What have you done before? And that can be very valuable, but it can also cost you valuable time where then as a caregiver, you get more and more stressed out. A care receiver is not getting what they might have been eligible for earlier on in their recovery and therefore it hampers their recovery so these are you know these are some of the gaps that we encounter that we see in in situations like this yeah just to break it down so that you know it's really clear what what you're saying is if somebody lived alone and they were to say well my neighbor will help take care of me my neighbor will pick me up my neighbor will check on me um, if the hospital is really busy and the discharge planner hears that there's somebody there to pick them up and somebody there to take care of them, even if that neighbor has never agreed to check on the person, to stay with them overnight, to take care of them, they're not going to quiz that person about it. That person who's being discharged could be discharged to the neighbor picking them up and stopping and getting the medication and then depositing them in their home with a recovering hip fracture. 
Right. Exactly. It's it's and that's and that's such a good point and a point of clarity is that, you know, the, the discharge planners and the case managers in the hospital are super busy. They're highly impacted. They have a lot of people they have to take care of. And so, yeah, somebody comes to them and says, oh, sure, I've got that all covered, but they don't really. Then then there are the gaps in services. So it's it's really important as a patient, you know, uh, to be very, very clear about what you know, you you know, the resources you have, not just assume that things are going to be in place, because that's a, that can be a very dangerous territory. And in fairness, too, if someone had a hip injury, a fracture, it's an assault to the body, they're not going to be thinking clearly, and their motivation is going to be, I want to go home. I want to get in my own home where I'm comfortable and I feel safer than I feel right here. So thinking logically about how am I going to shower? How am I going to get my food? How am I going to be able to get myself dressed and care for myself? What if all of those scenarios don't come into play until two, three, four days later when it hits the fan? Right, absolutely. And then it can, and then that adds an extra layer of stress uh, to the person because you are picturing yourself when you go home of living your life like it was before you had yes. injury, you know, or the sickness. And, and so you think, oh, yeah, I can do that. I've done that before. And then you are hit right up front with the fact that you cannot do that anymore. I, I, it's like, wait, I can't get myself dressed. I can't bathe myself. And then it feels humiliating as well. And it feels like it's right. some sort of a moral failure on, on the part of you as a person. But it's not at all. It's just the reality of, of sickness um, of being on the medications and of um, the inability to move in ways you've, you've been before. And you have to relearn everything, you know? So, yeah. And I think your point about there being care managers along the way. Now, if someone goes to rehab, right, what does that look like? So yeah. they say, no, I don't have anybody. I'm going to go somewhere else. Then what? Uh, yeah, if they, if they end up going to rehab, that can be very helpful because it's it's a stopgap to getting um, physical therapy where you've got clinical people watching over you, assisting, you know, encouraging you and having that kind of feedback of like, yes, how, you're doing this correctly or you're not doing this correctly. And then it also gives time to see how the physical therapy is going to go. So can you live independently? Can you, or do you need extra help when you're discharged? And, and that can really help set up the care plan much more fully. So, so you know, anytime you can get into rehab, that's great. Um, part of the issue of, with the, that brings in the pandemic, having it not be an emergency anymore, what Medicare is going to be going back to is that three-day hospital requirement. So you have to be admitted to the hospital for a full three days before you could be discharged to some sort of subacute kind of care, you know, for that rehab. Now, if you're in the hospital, you know, in the ER or just for a couple of nights, they're going to discharge you to home. And now they'll set you up with you know, maybe home health physical therapy, that's great too, but it's it's even better if you can get the the rehab level of therapy because it's a little more oversight and, and it and it makes for much more improved care planning. And again, with going back to pre COVID, pre emergency, 
if a person is goes home before that three days of hospitalization and they find I can't do this, right? And, or the family finds, oh my gosh, we made a mistake. We can't do this. She really needs or he really needs to be in a care facility for longer to take care of them. And then they go to try and get them in the care facility. It now costs a lot of money. Yes, it does. Yeah, I don't think people realize how much it costs to be in a skilled nursing facility, even how many thousands of dollars per month. It's around $7,000 a month to be in a skilled nursing facility. And and after the two-week or so rehab period, you know, then that all that cost falls on, on the shoulders of the individual. And that's what some people also don't anticipate. Um, if you have to stay a little longer at the skilled nursing facility, then it's like that, that burden falls to you to pay out of pocket. Um, and then the other complication with facilities, as we, we were talking before the show, is that if a person has a diagnosis like dementia um, try, and they need skilled nursing facility level care, uh, it's not it, really very unlikely to be placed here in the county and people are having to go to the Bay Area, um, LA County, and San Diego County in some cases to receive that kind of care. So that's that's something that people run into and don't expect. Yeah, uh, yeah. There's there's a lot we're going to be talking about. I'm Chris Kingdom Barker with you for Central Coast Voices on KCBX, your Central Coast listener supported radio station. My the voices with me today are Shannon McCowan, uh, Executive Director, and Shim. Kim Chartrand, RN and care manager for Hospice of San Luis Obispo County. We invite you to bring your comments about today's topic into our discussion or questions for Kim and Shannon. Um, what's been the most difficult part of your caring for a loved one? Uh, you can call us at 805-549-8855 and submit your question, or you could email us at Voices at kcbx.org. Um, Kim and Shannon, also, when, we, when we're talking about how, what are some of the most, uh, most frequent things that people are surprised about that Medicare does not cover or that their insurances do not cover? And they think, I'm I'm fully insured by Medicare. It covers that. Well, I mean, I think one of the big ones is um, caregiving, like paid caregivers in the home. You know, everybody wants to, most people want to stay home and yeah. be home. And, um, and at, at a certain point, um, a caregiver can only do so much and they need a break. They need respite. Um, and, they want to maybe they require more support and they need to start paying somebody to come in. And that is all out of pocket. None of that is covered by insurance or Medicare. Um, and it's quite pricey. Yeah. And Kim, you were saying before the show, it's gone up quite a bit since COVID too. Mm-hmm. What? What can people expect to pay if they have to hire for outside caregiving? 
So, and that's a great question. If you hire through an agency, the, the costs are generally between $35 and $45 an hour for um, a, care, you know, a regular custodial caregiver. If you need RN or LVN level care, that, of course, goes up from there. Um, and then, you know, if you hire an a individual who is doing this on their own, usually their fee is around $20 to $25 an hour. But the, the issue is with that, you have to do their background checking, you have to do the scheduling. So the agencies, they, you know, they, they do the background vetting, they make sure to do the scheduling. So it's your, your, it depends on how much your time is worth and how much money you have. Um, you know, we've calculated that if you did need somebody 24-7 in the home, it could cost $20,000 a month or more. Um, I know that facility, you know, care is also very expensive and out of reach for, for many people. But, um, yeah, that is try, just assuming that you're going to do this kind of care at home for a reasonable rate is unfortunately not possible. Um, and as Shannon was mentioning also before the show that, that there, there are four-hour minimums usually when it comes to providing this care. And sometimes people really only need an hour or two, like in the morning and at night, you know, maybe to just have some help and assistance or maybe some showering help. Um, but and that's something that home that uh, Medicare doesn't pay for anymore from the home health side of things. They used to pay for home health aids. Now that kind of um, service is only paid for at end of life when somebody is on ho medical hospice care. So you know that's a, another benefit that used to be present but is not. So people might assume that their insurance pays for that kind of service too, bathing, um, but that it doesn't. And you mentioned in-home hospice care and medically certified hospice care. There's some real confusion about what is covered or not covered on hospice care and how long um, it's covered on hospice care. Let's talk a little bit about that. Your, your organization is a very unique one. It's very unusual in that it's a volunteer model, and there aren't very many that exist like that, correct? We are one of 22 non-medical hospices left in the country. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and that, you know, a lot of that comes down to funding, essentially. Um, because we're non-medical, we do not bill insurance, and we actually are not allowed to charge for any of our services. So we depend on the community um, fundraising, grants, donations, um, bequests for our funding completely. Um, and we have managed to survive in this beautiful community for 45 years um, on that model. Um, and, and that is, uh, I think, a, a tremendous gift to this community that we have this model along with the, the medical you know, model of care as well. And what I'll just mention is, I, Kim's gonna talk you know, about what medical hospice covers and, and um, the benefits of medical hospice, which we a thousand percent support and encourage everyone to engage with as soon as, um, you know, you're uh, eligible to, because it's an, a tremendous service. Um, but for us, um, we, because we don't fall under Medicare, um, you can start receiving our support at time of diagnosis, um, where we provide in-home respite for caregivers, companionship, and we are also a community-wide grief center, meaning that we offer grief counseling and support groups 
to anyone in Slow County who um, is experiencing grief due to the loss of a loved one um, or including anticipatory loss. If you are navigating um, the pending loss of someone or yourself facing your own death, um, we are here to support you through that process, um, including, by the way, the loss um, of animal companions. And Kim, with thank you, Shannon, for that. And so you work in tandem, you know, frequently you may see someone much earlier than they would enter on to a medically certified hospice. And um, with a medically certified hospice, what kind of resources can a person expect to receive that could be really helpful? Yeah, that um, it and it can be very helpful. There's such a mis misconception around medical hospice everybody feels like you know that oh it uh, it automatically means that my loved one is dying that it, it's near death um that they have six months or less to live that's the best guess that the doctor can give um but it's kind of like what happens is is people get recertified and many of our our people who have dementia for instance um at the later stages of dementia will eventually qualify for medical hospice and get on it and they keep recertifying you know to um and it doesn't mean it's in, it's indefinite sometimes people um, when it comes to recertification, they actually are doing better because hospice care has been so supportive and, they, and their symptoms are so much improved that they actually graduate from hospice. So I think people think that, that hospice care means that people are locked in it and it's an automatic death sentence. And that's just not true at all. Um, you know, it's, it's there to support people in life and comfort. And, and um, you know, that's the whole meaning of the word hospice anyway, is, is it's, it's about comfort comfort. And so a person who does qualify for medical hospice, we encourage people to get on as soon as they can possibly qualify because you're, you don't, again, you don't have to stay on it and you can change your mind. You can say, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of done with this. You know, I don't want to do this anymore. But there are medical directors, each hospice, every hospice that's um, certified by Medicare has to have doctors. They have to have nurses counselors, social workers, there's pharmacists that take care of making the comfort packs. There are hospice aides, which are the home health aides that provide the bathing. There's spiritual support, and there are also volunteers. So it's also medical, I mean, I mean, a Medicare requirement is to have volunteers. So in addition to a hospice volunteer, a medical hospice volunteer, you know, oftentimes people have been working with us for, for maybe, you know, years before they actually go on to a medical hospice so they can keep their volunteer and that, and it just adds volunteer time at the end when maybe their caregiver or that person needs more support. I, I just like to, I'd like to add that hosp medical hospice and our hospice, it, it is not just for the person who is dying. This mm. is more for the entire family system. And the other thing, the other misconception I think about hospice is that hospice is going to come in and stay there and take over your own, your, your house and your living and be there 24 seven. And that's just not the case. It's actually far from it. The idea is that hospice comes in and provides the, the tools, the equipment and the support and the education and the empowerment. So they are educating and empowering the family and the support system to care for their loved one in their dying process. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, the family can be there and support 
And then if they, you know, if they need to call and get nurse support or spiritual support or any kind of support, they have the, you know, they can call the hospice and then they can come to the home and help, help navigate that. And of course, come and continue to check in, but it is by no means they're there to stay and help you through the dying experience. Yeah, and I think the the other side of that is that a, you know a statistic from Medicare itself is that for um, for the licensed staff of a medically certified hospice, it's average two hours a week that they actually interface um, in person with the person on hospice. So. It's not any more than that. There is support through phone support, but it's not going to be that someone's going to be planted in your home. The family or whoever's designated to take care of that person in the home is the person that's going to be administering the medication, watching for signs and symptoms, reporting back to the to the care team, and doing all the all the heavy lifting of taking care of that person all the way through the end of their life, unless they hire um, round-the-clock nursing care. So it's it's very different. So we're going to take a break right now because we want to go back to Nico and give him something to do. And we'll be coming back in just a few minutes. Thank you, Chris. I'm Nico Vignola with a look at the KCBX community calendar today. Come out and check out Forbes Oregon series, Felix Hell to Hell and Bach at the Performing Arts Center San Luis Obispo on Saturday, February 18th from 7.30 to 9. Felix Hell is one of the most respected concert organists in the world and is known for his diverse and innovative programming, drawing upon a repertoire covering five centuries, as well as frequently collaborating with composers on new music for the organ. For tickets and more information, visit calpolyarts.org. We'll return to Central Coast Voices right after this. I'm Maria Hinojosa. Next time on Latino USA, we go behind the meaning and the making of a polarizing Puerto Rican classic, a salsa song with a dramatic topical ending right at the height of the AIDS crisis. I can love a song musically. It's just I hate what the song does. Not even what it says, it's what it does. That's next time on Latino USA. On the next Fresh Air, the new Oscar-nominated documentary, All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, focuses on world-famous photographer Nan Golden, her life, her work, and the protests she led at museums that accepted funding from the Sackler family. Their company, Purdue Pharma, manufactured and unscrupulously marketed OxyContin. We'll talk with Golden and director Laura Poitras. Join us. The Federal Trade Commission has some new rules for marketing health and wellness products. Think dietary supplements and meditation apps and the like. Why, you ask? It's just gotten, like, very Wild West out there (laughs) with that type of advertising. I'm Kai Rizdal taming those wellness claims next time on Marketplace. All of that is ahead today at KCBX. We have Latina USA at 2, Fresh Air at 3, and Marketplace at 4. Now let's return to Central Coast Voices with Chris Kington-Barker and her guest. Back to you, Chris. Thank you, Nico. Welcome back. 
And welcome back to the voices of Shannon McGowan, Executive Director, and Kim Chartrand, RN, and Care Manager for Hospice of San Luis Obispo County. We've been talking about some of the gaps in services and some of the surprises that come with um, taking care of family members who need extra care, elderly family members. Uh, family members who have a serious illness and require help. And all of that can happen at any moment. It's not something we plan for. Uh, We've been talking about how that challenges and what some of those hiccups are that can be really costly. Um, Something I wanted to talk with uh, Shannon and, and Kim about is how Sometimes these things come up because um, we just really don't even have the connection anymore by living close enough to keep an eye on our own family. You know, even with Zoom and FaceTime and all of that, we can't do in those kind of virtual reels, what we can do by spending time with a person, a person who's got an onset of dementia can really fake their way through a real quick, fun conversation. I know my dad used to do this um, and could make it seem like they're a lot better off than they are. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, not only that, a person can can fake their way through a, you know, a long holiday weekend, you know, and really rally up and you and and honestly exhaust all their energy and then really like plummet as soon as their family leaves. We mm-hmm. see that happening all the time. And then, you know, we'll call their family and be and tell them, "Hey, your loved one has had a massive decline and you know we think you know we suggest you that da, 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 you know they need more support a caregiver maybe whatever and well, I was just with her she was perfectly fine and yeah. you don't realize what's going on you know and the other thing that we we see all the time is you know I don't want to be a burden to my right. family I and all of that and then Additionally, there are so many people who never learned how to ask for help. Right. And I can't tell you what a challenge this is. And so people are, have waited until they are in crisis to call and ask for help. And then they are shocked to find out that help, there's a wait list for help or yes. that help takes time to arrive. And then when the help finally does arrive, they've never learned how to accept. They don't know how to accept it. And and sometimes we'll turn it down. Yeah. Own, you know? And so a lot of people are just their their own worst enemies. And they don't you know and, and then on top of all of that, there's death phobia and end of life. Nobody wants to talk about any of this. 
And that would, you know, just talking about our wishes, you know, what were, what would be helpful. And honestly, if we don't want to be a burden to our loved ones, communicating transparency and talking about what, how we want to be treated, what, you know, what we want, what our wishes are so that our loved ones know and can make those decisions and help support us in that way. That is unburdening us. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when we're talking about pre-planning or advanced healthcare planning, um, I'm assuming you're talking about running into people that have done none of that. Even people with chronic diseases or terminal illnesses um, don't write down their wishes, don't assign someone to make choices for them when they can't make them for themselves. Um, and that's the burden. I don't know, you know, it, when people have to make a decision for someone with no information about them, that's the burden, not making the decision or not having, taking care of somebody is less of a burden than that. Yeah, you know, I, I'll tell you a, a quick personal story. You know, I, um, my aunt lived locally and I, for years, I tried to get her to do this work for me, you know, with me and do an advanced healthcare directive. And she just, she wouldn't do it. She wouldn't do it. But she always said, you're going to take care of me in my old age, right? <laughs> but this is the work I need to understand how you want me to take care of you. What does that mean to you? What does this look like for you? Um, we need to talk about this because I have limitations as to what I can actually do. So let's talk about this. Oh, no, 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 no. And then the time came and one thing led to another and she still wouldn't have these conversations with me. And then there we were, she was, she ended up in the hospital and she was dying and I was forced to make a decision without much clarity about what she really would have wanted. And I made the decision and I, you know, I feel firm in, in that, but it wasn't easy. And I have to, I have to live with that. Yeah. Whereas if we just had the conversation, I could have made that decision with confidence and knowing, you know, I'm doing this for her because this is what she wanted instead of it being, you know, I think this is the right thing to do given the circumstance that we're in right now. Right. Right. And how many people come across that kind of a situation? It's astounding. So yeah. is that something that, um, through hospice of San Luis County is provided if people were finally in a position of wanting to do an advanced healthcare directive and don't know it's you know how do you do that paperwork I mean it's a lot or it it's seems like a lot it's a lot of thought to go into it it's a lot of thought and it's a lot of, it, for a lot of people it's, it's information they've never considered or thought about and in fact have really avoided for a long, long time. This is a huge priority for Hospice Low County. Um, we would love to see this entire county, um, everyone over the age of 18 has an advanced healthcare directive filled out. Um, and this is, you know, in, in my view, this is a living document. This is not set in stone the moment you fill it out and get it signed. 
this is something that you review. We encourage you to review every year on your birthday and make sure that your wishes, everything that you've written down remains is still how you feel a year from when you filled it out. Things might have changed. You might have a new health situation that makes you kind of readjust, you know, what your wishes might be in a certain situation. How you fill out that document at the age of 20 is going to be a lot different than at the age of 40, 60, 80, or 95. Um, but it is such a gift to have it written out, you know, what you would want to have happen if you were in certain medical situations and you can speak for yourself, what you would want to have happen and who you're designating to make sure that that happens. It, you know, there's this misconception that you're, you know, you're empowering somebody to make the decision whether or not to, you know, pull you off life support. That is not the case. You've made the decision already whether or not you would want to be pulled off life support in this scenario. You're just saying this person has the authority to say to the doctor, she doesn't want to be on life support right now. We're pulling her off. Well, let's talk about the importance of the person because I keep hearing from people that, well, I've done an advanced healthcare directive. It's in my trust. I already, I already did that. Or um, I wrote something out. And then people being baffled why the care teams at a hospital didn't follow the wishes of a do not resuscitate and did not follow the wishes that were written and are somewhere, but are not there at the hospital. Can you talk, Kim, about why that happens and why what the hospital will default to? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so a lot of people will provide copies of their advanced health directives to their physicians and expect that that's going to be shared automatically and automatically pulled up. In fact, the only health system where I've encountered that this is true is at Kaiser, but we don't have Kaiser here in San Luis Obispo County. So, um, you know, that, that hospitals don't have that service, generally speaking. Um, there are some services out there that are trying to get um, advanced health directives directly to the hospital, but the hospitals have to pay a membership fee to do these things, and not all of them in the county are doing that. So, yeah, the, the thing is, is that, you know, unless you're taking the bull by the horn, so to speak, and say, here is my advanced health directive, this is how I want to be treated, and this is who you need to call, um, you know, and be up front with the staff. Don't just assume that the staff is going to have it, because they're not going to have it. And if you have a copy of your advanced health directive, that's one that's like, are, that are in trust, they're, they're pretty basic. They're really, really hard to fill out. Um, we've had really excellent luck with a, um, it's a, a document done by the University of California in um, San Francisco. And it's a, uh, it's called Prepare for Your Care. And it, it's available online. Um, you can just Google Prepare for Your Care. And it's it, easy to fill out. There's prompts. And it's a much more expanded one. It, look, it goes into a lot of advanced planning, things that you might not ask on a typical advanced health directive. Um, it's state specific. So whatever, you know, state you're in. So there's a California version. 
Um, yeah, so that's really, really important for somebody. And like Shannon said, is to have it, you know, be updated that it reflects your wishes. Um, when you're 18, you might not, you, you might want to be resuscitated, right? You know, pretty routinely and regularly. And if you're, if you're, you know, 108, you might not want to be, they might be ready, you know, like I'm done. But um, uh, there was another question you had in there. Uh, it's about, the, about the alignment of who you would choose as your spokesperson. Right, exactly. And that and that's the most important aspect is, is, is who is going to be your, your healthcare proxy or agent. Because if it's, you know, sometimes people automatically put their spouse or their partner. And uh, what happens is that that person might not be, want the role, number one. They might not be able to speak adequately for you because they might have different interests. So you're going to want to choose somebody. Actually, you're going to want to choose at least three people to have, you know, a bench, basically, that you know will uphold your wishes no matter what and are going to be able to interface with the medical staff. Um, because the thing about being in the hospital is they're going to automatically revert to um, resuscitation. So if you have a do not resuscitate or, you know, wish on your on your uh, advanced health directive that if unless that's specified to them clearly that that's not what's going to be honored um you know my grandmother had this experience this was many years ago but she did not want to be resuscitated and my mom who was on with her was her proxy wanted her to stay alive and so she ordered them you know said yes thumbs up to resuscitation and later on my grandmother said to me she says don't say anything to your mom but she says I didn't I, I'm so sad that I woke up you know that I am here I want I, I was done she had a, a lot of chronic issues and was in a lot of pain and she was she'd made peace with her life and wanted to be let go but you know my mom wasn't ready for that and mm -hmm. it, it made a selfish decision you know right, right. yeah yeah and and it's so easy to it's so easy to do in the spur of a moment without considering the other person because you consider from your own heart. Yeah, absolutely. What what let's talk about we talked about long term care and you had mentioned that in long term care sometimes if people are placed in a facility, in a long term care facility and there may be dementia involved, but even if there's not, sometimes the facilities are full, the larger ones, and placement is actually made outside the county. Um, even if family lives in the county, which is kind of harsh, but unnecessary. Can you talk about the different options for long-term care for folks who can no longer live in their own homes um, there isn't the possibility of them living with relatives. What are some other options for living situations that keep them safe and protected and are affordable perhaps? Yes, and, and a lot of people don't um, know what all is there. People will say assisted living and they uh, sometimes assisted living, they don't realize that the assistance that a person receives in assisted living is paid on a tiered basis. So you have a baseline amount. If you can live independently, that's great. But then if you need medications or laundry or different things, then there's, you know, there's surcharges on top of that. So that, that might not be um, a, a really good option for somebody that needs more than independent, you know, kind of living or needs 
needs more than um, they need more consistent care, I guess I would say. And is the skilled nursing facilities not an option because of either that you can't be placed, you know, for a long term in there because of the, um, you know, the, the requirements of the facility to have a space available for rehab patients. There's another option that's called, um, it's called uh, commonly known as boarding care. Uh, it's residential care facilities, RCFEs is what they're called. Uh, these are smaller homes that are licensed by the state that have administrators and then care providers that are on the premises, uh, depending on the facility, 24 seven. So that if a person does need that kind of care, and they don't have a lot of nursing care, but it's more custodial care, then um, that's a great option. And it's generally more affordable than some of the facilities um, around. It can range in price for sure. And we're talking, you know, many thousands of dollars, but it is the kind of thing um, that is an option that people don't often think about. And it can be a nice option for the care receiver because they are generally more home-like um, experiences. So that's that's something for people to consider. Does Medicare pay for a C an RCFE? No, Medicare does not pay for any of those things. So assisted living, um, memory care, or the RCFE slash boarding care situations. Sometimes long-term care will pay for those things. Um, if a person is receiving veterans uh, VA benefits, Sometimes they will pay for um, facil these facilities as well, but you have to sh you generally show, you have to pay out of pocket and show um, that you need this care uh, before, that, before that insurance or the VA will kick in. So mm -hmm. this is all out of pocket um, for people. Um, and that's something that can be hard be from, from a financial standpoint. Yeah. yeah, it really sounds like, you know, and, and this still exists in other countries, but the multi-generational living circumstances that we as Americans and independents really drifted away from, our system never, never evolved away from it. So we created, you know, this may be me waxing on, but we've created a, a culture of dividing that up without creating a way to support without it. So when, you know, before you would be able to have people age in place in home, even when they needed more assistance, like your own assisted living support system as you got older in your own home. And now even homes aren't built for people to age in. We started building a lot of stairwells and stairs and, you know, multi-levels, which are deaf on, on, you know, arthritic people who have a hard time navigating through that. It's just, we're creating this jungle. What do we do? <laughs> what do we do? Well, and I think that that does offer an opportunity is that people don't realize, I think, that the social aspect of health is part, probably the most important. It's a, it's, if people are not socially connected and don't have social support systems, study after study shows that their health is less 
optimal than people who who might have all the money in the world or might have you know all the care opportunities in the world. So being socially connected is hugely important, and and that would be something that I would love to see come back into favor is that we, as a community and as families, that we start to embrace this as sort of normal instead of being shocked that like, oh, somebody needs care and then, you know, and, and kind of freak out. It's just like, hey, yeah, this is what we do. This is this is how we are. And and how can we support that? How can we support the education? Um, the Family Caregiver Alliance up in the Bay Area has a wonderful um, thing on YouTube that's called the Caregiver College. If you get on YouTube and, and just do throw in the search Caregiver College, there's this whole multi-part um, thing about different kinds of caregiving, basic caregiving that most of us weren't taught how to do, but it shows you how to do it and kind of strategies so that so that hopefully as a caregiver we can kind of uh, uh, you know understand what we're doing. Yeah, you know, there. Um, I think it was Katie Butler in her most recent, more recent book when she was talking about aging and when she was talking about also as we get older that it, an important factor of that is to develop relationships around you with multi-generations um, because, in, and I think you you folks are seeing this, that the people that become the most isolated are perhaps the people who have maintained relationships only with people in their own age demographic. And as we get older and we're entering our 80s and fewer people are surviving their later 80s, we become more and more isolated. Whereas if you've got and you know your neighbors who are in their 40s and you know your neighbors who are in their 50s, those are the people that are going to be able to help you out when you've got a bad hip and you can't drive and you need medication or you need support to go to a physician. Um, your friends who are also 88, 89 probably aren't going to be the best relying on them for transportation and, you know, hauling groceries and doing the things that you can't do, right? Right. I mean, I think that, and, and what we tend to diminish the role of um, younger people, you know, yes. they want to help, you know, they, they might want to be involved. They, there are things that they can do and things they want to do and ways to help. It doesn't mean they have to help for hours and hours at a time every day and doing the really gnarly caregiving, but they can do a lot of things and they want to do a lot of things. And this normalizes, um, you know, caring for one another as a community, you know. Yeah, the intergenerational energy that happens with it in countries where they take college students and they live with the elderly as room and board, you know, and companionship um, that helps the college student not have the taxation of uh, trying to uh, pay for room and board while they're also paying for college. And it helps the older person in having a companion and learning new things and sharing information. And it's an incredible experience for both. It would Absolutely. be great. Yeah. Yeah, we have a client who has, uh, he was a former Cal Poly professor and 
he's his volunteers have been Cal Poly students, and they've been um, and they're all um, pre-med. And the, who, the people who've been involved. And so they are getting to see, you know, firsthand what it's like for a person aging in their home, aging in place with, you know, as, with different diagnoses and you yeah. know, different concerns. And, and then also be able to help, you know, the, talk about, well, what was it like being a professor and, you know, these things. So anyway, it's been, it's been a part of that, that social structure of bringing that into people's lives. There's discussion in the, in the world of care also of how are we going to fill some of these gaps with other caregiving components because there are a few people fewer people going into the nursing profession more people exited the nursing profession during covid than has happened in a long time and these were younger people also that exited, not just people who were ready to retire, but people who got burned out and said, I don't want to do this anymore. Um, fewer people are entering into some of the other healthcare careers. You have people dealing with being um, nursing attendants and um, so when we're talking about taking care of people, especially toward end of life, we're not talking about somebody that has to be really professional. Um, maybe another conversation we can have at another time is talking about another program you have for end of life doulas, which is another portion of stopping that gap for caregivers. It's going to take a, it's going to take a community effort to fill this gap. Well, we will come back to that another time. And I want to thank my guests today, Shannon McGowett, Executive Director for Hospice of San Luis Obispo County, and Kim Chartran, Care Manager and RN. And next week, please join um, Latte as she has a guest who's going to be coming on, and I'm sure will be just absolutely stunning. You've been listening to Center Coast Voices on KCBX Radio. Thank you.